I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. Today's sponsored insight is another empty room, an opportunity ignored by most investors because they either don't want to or can't participate. This time around, we'll discuss investing where capital is truly scarce, the frontier of the frontier markets. My guest is Kian Zandia, the Chief Investment Officer of Sturgeon Capital, a $350 million venture firm that backs bold founders building the leading technology companies in countries early in their digital transition, including Bangladesh, Central Asia, Egypt, and Pakistan. Our conversation covers Kian's early entrepreneurial and investing experience, venture and operating experience building two businesses in Iran through 80% currency devaluations, and Sturgeon's venture strategy from there. We discuss Sturgeon's investment process across country selection, targets, founders, valuation, risks, and investment examples. And we close touching on Kian's ambition in the coming years. Before we get going, Last week, we lost Sam Zell, one of the true investment greats and one of the most popular past guests on the show. As a very small tribute to the great man and investor, we replayed my conversation with Sam in the feed last weekend. This week, have a listen to the wise and entertaining story of Sam Zell and give a hug to those you love. Please enjoy my conversation with Kian Zandia. Can't get to see you. Likewise. Pleasure to be speaking with you, Ted. Why don't you take me all the way back to your family background and how you first got interested in investing? Yes, I guess a bit of an esoteric one. Born in the UK, but originally Iranian. My father moved there before the revolution to study. I was a mechanical engineer and ended up running, being an executive in an oil and gas company here. But that effectively meant we grew up in the British countryside with a lot of time on my hands and having a relatively both productive and disciplined father, you didn't really feel comfortable not doing much. So you're always trying to be engaged in something. I was lucky to come across books of pretty great people and investors that inspired me or set role models for me, where I think the combination of that productivity, discipline, and reading about people that had been entrepreneurs or been good investors got me intrigued in the subject so much that it's what I wanted to spend a lot of my time doing. And so that really was what got me into investing. How old were you when you first started diving into that? 13, 14. I think the first book I read when I was 10 was the autobiography of Ben Franklin, which blew my mind. I was like, that's someone that's kind of lived a pretty good life. And then I think, yeah, 13, 14, read the Lowenstein book and Buffett, The Making of an American Capitalist. And that's when you have your cliche aha moment. Ah, This guy's got to figure it out in terms of how to allocate capital and live a pretty good life. How'd you go from reading to doing something about it? I didn't start off with investing per se, as you traditionally define it. It was more, I had a lot of different side hustles. So for example, when I was a teenager, it was at the time where also you could start buying wholesale stuff from China through the likes of Alibaba. And so for a period of time, I was buying, ironically, face masks, obviously pre-COVID, where you could buy them at the time for about 0.8 pence, 20-foot containers, and sell them for 20p in Iran. For a while, I had that side business. I was even in the laundry business. You could buy laundry places for two times earnings and you only need around $20,000, $30,000 to buy them. I always thought about it from a perspective of allocating capital on where you can compound the return. And that's when you come across a stock market naturally, and which is effectively the widest arena with the largest choices of areas that you can allocate capital to. And so I began investing whatever money I was making from these side hustles into stocks. Where did you take that? So that continued up until I was around 16, 17, and then had more ideas than money. So settled on the idea of trying to launch a fund and being ingrained in the school of Buffett. I said, okay, well, let me just be unoriginal and copy exactly what he did in his partnership. So I had a structure which was 0% management fees and 25% performance fee above 6%. And at the time, put together a document, which was really a free pager. I don't really think you can call it a prospectus. That was basically describing what I had done, what my views were, and what I thought I could do with people's money. 
and try to raise some capital. And so I think for my age, I raised a decent amount of money and set about my investment partnership. How much was that? It was around 3 million, actually, which actually came from basically three investors, which were largely individuals that had known me since I was a little kid, I guess, that were individually successful in their own right. And I think for whatever reason, they liked the novelty of a weird young kid that was offering them to manage their money on their behalf. I guess I'm internally grateful to them for trusting me with that at the time. So what did that fund look like? Very weird. I mean, nothing like what you would see a normal fund do today. So it was basically unconstrained. They weren't particularly investors that were stock market investors themselves. And so more it was just wherever I could find opportunities to make money. But obviously coming off the value ilk, a lot of it was driven by taking relatively large positions in companies that had fallen a lot in share price. So I would consistently scan 52-week lows of share prices and try and understand, is there a sustainable reason why this thing is cheap? Or is it a one-off that probably at some point the price would correct? And so a lot of my time I spent doing that. I think I was too impatient to be this long-term compounder in the truest form of Buffett. Even some merger arbitrage stuff. And I had no concentration limit. So at some points I would have one company that was 60% of the fund which means extreme volatility, but actually the performance was pretty good. What was that position, by the way? Well, certainly there was just so much that I didn't know then that thankfully I know now. That company in particular was a bit of a random one. So it was a London-listed gold mine in Egypt. And going back to that dynamic where I was looking at just 52-week lows, this was a company that overnight, basically their stock price fell from around £1.80 to about 29 pence, if I think. Precisely. And the reason why that was, was because there was an independent member of that parliament that had brought a court case against the company, which was a family run business that for a long period of time had spent a lot of money to extract this mine and it was operational and cash flow positive, that that license was invalid. And naturally, if you're an institutional investor, you don't really want to deal with that uncertainty. At best, a mid cap company is on the fringes of your portfolio. So you just sell down, hence the price drop. I think I was up until like four in the morning studying the whole thing. And you quickly came to the conclusion that at best, this member of parliament just had a personal agenda against the management. And that largely, from a legal perspective, the whole thing didn't stack up. And that the company at that point in time was trading at two times earnings at about 0.1 times book. And there was a clear catalyst event. You just have so much valuation protection. And that makes sense to as an investment. So that was the position that made 60% of the fund. And what was stupid about what I did then was <laughs> that that wasn't enough. I took on leverage as well. <laughs> Why? Because that's the immaturity. You're in a rush to make money. So thankfully, it all worked out. Company went back up to around pound forty over a space of three years. But my God, managing that volatility on that leverage over these years was an absolute nightmare. Basically, it was a lesson. If you have a situation that's good enough, just quieten down, be patient, and buckle up instead of wanting to rush it. But I realized that at the tail end of it, I'd gone to business school and so on and so forth, basically settled really on the idea that what I really was passionate about and wanted to do was build an investment firm. And that probably that strategy I had did not fit within any institutional bucket. And so it was better to look for an area where I could apply myself as an investor in an entrepreneurial sense, but also I had an edge. There's a competitive dynamic that I thought that we could build a pretty good firm over a period of time. So as you came out of school, what was your first real job? I didn't really have a real job, so to speak. So I was managing this fund, and by the time I'd given the return of capital, I've just on performance fees alone, I'd done relatively okay that I wasn't in that urge that a lot of the other students were to find the graduate scheme. I was really intrigued by emerging markets as an asset class for a number of reasons. One, because I spent a lot of time, obviously being originally Iranian, I would spend every summer there. You would just see... Obviously, individuals that are as able or if not more able than you are, you would see a very resilient private sector. And so you would objectively think that there's a lot of opportunities there. But when you then looked at firms that were investing in emerging markets, there were very few and far between that actually had had a good long-term track record. So I became kind of intellectually curious as to understand why that was. And so the first real place I went to work actually with Nouri Rubini. At the time, he had a firm called Rubini Global Economics and effectively ended up leading their emerging market research and strategy. They had created a product, it was almost a data platform, where they were sucking in all the public available data in every country in the world to give them outputs on aggregate that could then inform from a data perspective what is actually going on in the world and in these individual countries to then layer on the more qualitative overview as to how to think about investing in these markets. And what you really saw when monitoring that data was there was 
a few interesting things that were happening. One was smartphone penetration and internet availability was going up at a rapid clip. And what that effectively meant was that all the business models that we had become accustomed to in the more developed world or the Western world, which as an investor, you basically can come to the conclusion that the best business models, the most supreme business models are technology business models. That all of a sudden, the idea that they could be implemented in countries that had never had them implemented, where typically inefficiency is higher, would be a very interesting prospect to explore. It was also intersected with a time where you started seeing successful technology companies being built out of countries like China, India, Southeast Asia, that had validated the concept. But there was so much more of that emerging of frontier market world where stuff had to be built. That conceptually is a very interesting opportunity. I was at Norio's firm for about two years or so, up until I think 24, 25. And then in 2015, if you remember leading into 2016, sanctions had lifted on Iran. There was a nuclear deal, the JCPOA with the US, and there was flurry to do business in the country. And it's when I came across the founder of Sturgeon Capital, an Italian gentleman called Clemente Capello, which had originally launched a firm to do public market investing in frontier and emerging markets. He wanted to launch a fund dedicated to Iran. We met, got on very well, and basically was almost given a blank canvas to launch that fund and settle on a strategy. And that's where the platform where this technology investing thesis, we got to execute. What we did was launch the fund, but really start two companies with that capital. It wasn't a passive strategy. It was very active. We said, okay, let's go straight into the operations, not mess around almost, to see what we can do. We settled on two business models. The first was... Every year in the country, you have about $30 billion of used car transactions offline and no online solution really to make that process much more efficient. The beauty of technology in these markets is really in distribution. Because it's technology native, you can build out distribution in a scale that no offline business could. And that you could use the revenues off the back of that to basically build a product at a much more distributed cost base to have it much more efficient than any offline alternative. So that was the first business that we settled on. The second was online insurance. So you have about $5 billion of insurance sold in the country every year, sold by 40,000 agents offline, spread it, fragmented across the country, and that we could probably do a better job of building an online platform that would compare prices across all the insurance companies, and that we would have direct agreements with the insurance companies where we would take roughly about 20% commission on every insurance policy sold. Over a period of years, we built those businesses up. They do around $110 million in revenue. They're profitable businesses. They're the leader in their own sector. and have a very long runway to grow ahead of them. The main takeaway was that actually over the period we were running them, we went through two 80% currency devaluations. Now, if you take a step back and look at emerging markets generally, the biggest reason why investors had a difficult time really generating outsized returns is because of this currency devaluation and that offline businesses just do not have the capability to outgrow from a revenue perspective, whatever that currency devaluation is, but as a technology company operating in a very, very deep market, even in those years where the currency devalued, we could still in dollar terms grow 2x. And so as an investment strategy, you can come to the conclusion that if you pick the right business model and execute in the right manner, you have very large markets that you can go after that allow you to generate the returns that one, deserve if they're investing in emerging and frontier markets. But two, that also that strategy is very resilient in the face of the reality of what is volatile economies. In those two businesses, what role did you take on as operator versus investor? In both cases, we were two people or three people in a room. In the car case, auto business is effectively a garage, not an office. And so it was to provide the initial capital to get going, to effectively work alongside management on the day-to-day -day administrative stuff that needs to be done to effectively get the business going. And as much as possible to be a sparring partner when it comes to the strategy and the manner of execution with which the management was running that business. So it was pretty involved in the early stages. And then after a period of time, it was to make sure that you had the co-investors that could provide the capital for the business to continue to grow. Now, as a business, then in 2018, obviously, when Trump came in power, sanctions got reinstated in the country. And so the businesses are still doing very well. They're growing. But us as an investment business, one, we cannot be dealing with a sanctioned country. And two, we cannot scale our business there. But the lessons that we learned, we really took away. And then try to identify countries and regions where we believe that they have very large populations, that from a technology infrastructure perspective, you've seen 60, 70% of the population have now smartphones. 
you're seeing very good demographics in the sense that 65% of the population are typically under the age of 35, median age of roughly 27, 28. But still, you're very early in the cycle of e-commerce penetration, software penetration, digital payments, and lending. Whereas in more developed emerging markets, China, India, Southeast Asia, and Latin America, you had already seen that played out. With these countries, it was the belief that there is an inevitability to be played out. And by being focused on them early when there are not too many venture firms there, that you have an unfair advantage when it comes to sourcing and deal flow. And that was really the genesis of the venture business within Sturgeon. As you use that lens, what are the countries that you came to that fit into those characteristics? The first region was Central Asia and the Caucasus. And to put that maybe on a map, it's basically all the countries between China and Europe, which is a quite a large part of the world, which easily gets ignored because you don't hear about it day to day. And why there? Because the Sturgeon, prior to restarting the strategy when I took over day-to-day management and this, did a lot of business in Central Asia. And so we had a pretty good network and infrastructure there. Two, you had just had the IPO of a company called Caspi, which is a $15 billion business listed in London, a technology business out of Kazakhstan, out of all places, which had validated that you could build a sizable business there. And so had sprung a lot of entrepreneurs trying to build technology companies across the region. And that, that basically you had no VCs that were investing there. So we almost had, again, an unfair advantage and a blank canvas to allocate capital and hopefully building out what the technology ecosystem of that region looks like. And then once we started doing that, the other region that became obvious was South Asia x India. There is basically two countries, Bangladesh and Pakistan, where combined you have about 400 million people. Uh, You have GDP per capita actually higher than India, but still sub-1% e-commerce penetration, low levels of digital payment, and low levels of B2B software. And that combined, you have roughly about a trillion dollars in GDP that probably over the next 10, 20 years, 20 to 30% of that is up for grabs by technology companies that can service that revenue base. When you're talking about the breadth of, say, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and a whole bunch of countries in Central Asia, how did you think about getting on the ground so that you can find opportunities in a diverse range of countries? I think there's different operating models you can go about it. You could be 100% locally based in the country, which has its advantages. The disadvantages is that it's very difficult to take a step back and have a neutral, rational view. You could be completely based in New York or California and never travel to these countries, in which case you have no idea what's going on. We basically have molded a hybrid of the two where we have a light London team, where it's our headquarters, we're FCA regulated here, but the majority of our team is based in-country, on the ground. And that typically the profile of those individuals, that they've been allocated capital in the country for private investments in a meaningful way before. So in a country like Uzbekistan, we have uh, Ali John, who previously was running a sovereign fund for the country, or ex-operators, or ideally the combination of the two. So in a country like Pakistan, where we have a gentle Kassad, was at Morgan Stanley before, started a mapping company in the US, actually sold it moved back to the country, was running one of the payment companies there, and then was running the VC arm of the largest bank. So you have that local know-how, nuance being plugged into the ecosystem, but then you have an office or mind that is trying to process everything that's coming out of these countries to come up with a framework and a way of approach to make it work from an investment strategy perspective. What's the team that you have in place today executing these strategies in total? 18 people in total executing across these strategies. What we also have, especially on the venture layer, is partners that are have carry, we pay them, but we don't have them full-time. But their profiles are founders, CEOs, senior management teams of some of the most successful technology companies in emerging markets, where what we're trying to do is underwrite execution risk. Their whole 10-year existence has been understanding execution very well in these types of markets. And that collectively we bring their full mental capacity to our portfolio as and when needed. That's quite a scalable way of also building up capacity and a knowledge muscle, so to speak. How many of the different countries do you have people locally on the ground? In terms of core focus, I would say four. But then we invest in ancillary countries where we believe we can bring that business or product or service into the countries that we operate in as well. So at the moment, it's Pakistan, Bangladesh, and then I should say five. It's Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, and Georgia. But the point is that what you're typically investing in, I'll go for a few examples, are companies based out of the regions that can service multiple regions and countries. It just happens that they happen to start from these countries. 
What are the typical characteristics of a company in technology when you seek to get involved? So we never invest in pre-revenue stage businesses. Typically, there are companies that are, at the time of investments, their revenues on the lower end are around half a million dollars, and at the upper end, around $10 million. So they've already built up a level of traction where you have data to see what is going on. What we're looking for in terms of opportunities are companies that understand and have the means to build out distribution on scale, but also have a product or service where they can monetize that distribution effectively and more so over time. Now, if you think about the distribution lens, again, outside of telecom operators in these countries, no company has millions of users. And typically in these countries, customer acquisition costs ranges from around 5 to $10 each, which is very low. So if you wanted to be very simplistic about it, you could say, I'll spend a million dollars and I'll get 200,000 users from it. The question then is, well, what is the business model that you're layering on top of that to extract revenue per user? And we want to invest at the intersection of very good distribution and very good monetization. And so typically that's the intersection of either marketplace models and lending or payments or marketplace models and some other commerce transaction. So one example I can give you to maybe provide the context is a company in Bangladesh. It's a business that effectively serves large fashion brands. So think of the Inditex of this world, the H&Ms of this world, where in their production process, what they're dealing with is a very long tail of fragmented manufacturers that is very difficult for them to manage. Now, Bangladesh happens to be a textile production export hub of the world. And so what they did is effectively build technology that can aggregate the existing manufacturing capacity without owning that capacity. So they, at any point in time, through their software, know which factory has capacity for X amount of production, what materials they have. So you've really aggregated supply without any capital expenditure. Now, on the other side, you go to the brands and say, rather than you dealing with 100 different manufacturers, which quality control is very difficult for you, I can produce exactly what you want, and you're dealing with one interface seamlessly, and I can be a production arm. There's a few benefits to that. One is that you're taking local currency costs and hard currency revenues. So you have an implicit currency hedge. Once you're installed into a certain volume of their production, if you do a good job, there's a reasonable probability that you can increase it over time. That is a very, very large addressable business. Now, in this case, and specifically, the company has already the relationships that likes with Inditex, the H&Ms, the large brands of the world, where what we see is basically in the first year, as soon as these brands start working with them, they almost quadruple the output or the volume of production that they pass on to them. And if you just look at the total size of the wallet that these brands produce annually, it's $30 billion. So, okay, the question is, what share of that can you grab over time, even if you don't acquire any more enterprise customers? But that's inherently a 20% margin business, which is extremely capital light. And it just so happens that the other two investors in the cap table are marketplace business experts. So you have a very good cap table. You have a really global product that just happens to come out of Bangladesh. And the base case, if they don't hit the lights out in terms of 10, 20% share of that wallet, is still a very strong business that has nice margin profiles. And so the downside risk is also limited. So that hopefully gives you the context of the types of businesses that we like and look for. What have you found about the quality of the entrepreneurs running the businesses in these different regions? Variance is high. In the ideal sense, you would want to be investing with an entrepreneur that it's their second or third endeavor after a few previous successes. And one of our largest investments is that. I mean, it's a company called Zootpay. The founder started his first business when he was in his 20s. He sold it for about $100 million. Second business, built an $800 million business. And this is his third business. He's 50, he has five kids. I don't know how he has the energy, but he's just an incredible entrepreneur. The typical cohort is actually first-time founders, but they have the combination of being born and raised in the country, so they have the local nuance and understanding, but have worked and studied abroad, so they have concept of what best practice is and what good execution looks like, and that really they're coming back to the country because they believe that the opportunity set for themselves is larger than if they were to earn a pretty good salary working at Google or Microsoft. So we really like that profile of founders and ideally co-founders that can pull together to run these businesses. When you're sourcing deals, do you start with your industry focus and then try to find entrepreneurs? Or at times, are you more focused on who the entrepreneur is within your industry verticals? I would say it's a two-step process. So 
when you look at these countries again, because so much is offline, and typically because the government has been the largest allocator of capital and resources, inefficiency is just high in many large different areas, whether it's e-commerce, whether it's in logistics, payments. So the opportunity set is actually quite clear. Now, there's the second layer question of what is the business model tackling that opportunity set? Is it economic? Does it have barriers to entry? So on and so forth. But once you've passed those two layers, it only works if you have a founder and a management team that really have the wherewithal to execute. And so what we like to say that we're doing is at the time of investment, the stage is really what we're truly underwriting is execution risk of the management team being able to capture the opportunity set that is at hand. And it's not a question of if that opportunity set exists, it's just how they go about executing it. Our view is that we can manage execution risk much more proactively than if we were trying to manage any other risk, such as does the business model even make sense? What do you find in terms of valuation? Well, certainly a discount to what you would find in, let's say, developed markets, especially over the past few years, and even more so now in this current market environment. The dynamic that I think is different also in these markets relative to, let's say, the US or Europe is generally because these countries have not had a deep pool of funding available to them. The entrepreneurs from the get-go understand that basically they have to very quickly create a profitable business that can stand on its own two feet. They typically are not business models that have to rely on an excess of capital to fund losses for an extended period of time. And one of the high-level concerns I would imagine people would have is national governance in some of these countries. How do you think about the risk of something going wrong beyond the scope of the company itself? An interesting way to look at it is contrasted with traditional private equity versus venture in these two markets. Wear the hat of I'm a traditional private equity, I buy industrial businesses, I buy mining businesses. The difference is there you have a tangible asset that it relatively is operationally simple to run. There's a positive correlation between the success of it and the willingness of the government to ultimately want to take it off you at some point in time, because there is a real underlying tangible asset that they can take. It's pretty easy to install someone that can run it. And generalizing, you can have governance concerns. If you translate it into, on a technology side, one, you're not dealing in tangible assets. There's intangible assets, there's no land, there's nothing really to take. Two, they're operationally complex businesses to run. And three, you're not really taking market share for, away from anyone. You are not disrupting anyone in any means. What you're doing is complementing the existing system. If I paint an example, if you look at e-commerce, what are you really doing? You're saying, I am helping the long tail of local merchants increase their revenues by helping them sell online and doing it in a transparent manner because it's digital. So tax revenue from it goes up. I have to work with the local logistics companies. And by virtue of that, I probably will be their largest revenue source. And I will force them to be efficient because I need them to be efficient to be able to work with me. And for the consumer, basically, you're allowing them to buy products at probably what will be a cheaper price than if that platform didn't exist. And you're a source of FDI and you're hiring for the youth where typically unemployment is the highest. So what you typically see is actually the governments are the largest champions of FDI, specifically in the technology sector, because they understand that it's a reset economically for their country, where they can reshape a lot of the inefficiencies that exist throughout the various different layers of those economies. What are some of the risks that you encounter investing in these businesses? I think to a large extent, the risks you see in these markets are not too dissimilar from the risks you would be if you were investing in any other market. As in the highest factor that would lead to you losing capital is not making the correct assumptions on the economic model of the business, not truly understanding how much capital that business needs to be able to scale, making a bad bet on the management that's running it. So they're all the same types of risks. The one that is a bit more acute in these markets is, as I said, you do not have a deep pool of funding available. And so if it is a business model that just so happens to need a little bit more capital to get to the size that it can, you need to make sure that you have a pool of co-investors with you that have the balance sheet and the wherewithal to continue to co-invest alongside you to de-risk that downstream funding which the company may need. So some of that latter risk of not having the capital has to dovetail with, as you're talking to the investor community, people being skeptical about the markets by definition because there isn't capital coming in. What are some of the critiques that you hear about your strategy? Certainly, the liquidity is one. What I think we've tried to do as a firm, I like to think we do a good job of it, is basically being 
champions almost of these businesses in these countries and meeting investors from around the world to establish a relationship to bring them on as co-investors. And we've been lucky to co-invest alongside some very good names in these markets. And it's been the first time that they've been invested in them. So we've demonstrated the value of them participating in it. The second, obviously, is always exits and, okay, it's great building this business, but where does the liquidity come from the other side? And I think now you have enough precedent of multiple different ways of exits across multiple emerging markets throughout economic cycles that basically if you come to the conclusion that if you can build a business that earns the right for an exit, it will get an exit. If a business is just not good enough, they won't get an exit. That's fundamentally true. That also has been de-risked. And the third is frankly that these markets are early and we don't raise very large funds. We care a lot about performance and I think especially in venture size is the enemy of performance. So if you do back of the envelope maths, Assuming a 50 million fund and you own 10% fully diluted and you want to 5x that fund, you have to create $2 billion of enterprise value. Now, 10x that and a half a billion dollar fund, you have to create $20 billion in enterprise value to 5x that. I think it explains why the average upper quartile DPI is 1.76. The fund sizes cannot even cope with generating that much enterprise value. So to care about performance, we have to be very capacity constrained on the funds that we do. So naturally, there are some investors where, for constraint reasons, they can't participate. What are other misperceptions that you find about the markets you're investing in? Well, clearly, if you were a follower of different emerging markets over the past 20, 30 years, which is the life cycle of it, you've seen a lot of people get their fingers burnt. And so you just develop a pretty firm heuristic to say, no, I'm good. I like investing in the US and Europe. But I think that underestimates truly what is happening from a technology perspective in these countries and the speed with which so many different things will compound. So if you just think about, as I said, the median age is 28, and that's a generation that's growing up with equal access to information and knowledge the way me and you have for a very long period of time. And that youth is very hungry. The speed at which they're learning is exponential. Layer on top of that, the distribution dynamics that I said are innate in technology companies and high levels of existing inefficiency in what are relatively large economies. I think just the sheer enterprise value creation that will come from technology companies in these countries will be immense. What's the competitive environment like for the deals you're interested in? Yeah, so I think at this stage where we are in the countries, one of the criteria is that we purposely don't want too many venture firms to be in there to start with. So you take a country like Bangladesh, 170 million people, eighth largest smartphone user base in the world. As I said, GDP per capita higher than India. You only have two VCs in the whole country. So by just being focused and dedicated to it, you kind of have an unfair advantage when it comes to sourcing, such that if you are an entrepreneur of company of any quality, we are hopefully a natural partner for you to reach out to, to want to see capital from. That's the competitive environment today. But we then work to bring in more competition counterintuitively because we want more liquidity in these markets. So whether it's from regional investment firms, international investment firms, half of our job is capital formation. And we take that seriously. Walk me through an investment from soup to nuts. Take an esoteric country like Uzbekistan, 35 million people. If you look at the banking sector, effectively 80% of that banking sector only does corporate and government lending. There's no real retail banking. There's no real banking to small to mid-sized businesses. Small to mid-sized businesses are about 60% of the country's GDP. You say, okay, well, objectively, that's a pretty big opportunity to build a lending business. Our first iteration was to be, there's no existing bank or technology company to back, let's acquire a small bank and bring a management team into it that can then run it in the most efficient manner so that we can build a market share and I'm simplifying it in consumer. And we went close to completing that transaction, but then COVID hit and obviously things got paused. But then six months later, we effectively came across a management team that basically all they have done over the past 20 years is build very efficient financial service institutions, technology-led in nearly a dozen different frontier and emerging markets, and have had a very successful track record doing so. And that they would be very good partners to have. And we then brought on another investor, which was actually the Finnish Development Fund, the Government Fund of Finland, to provide the equity balance sheet for them to go and capture what we believe was the opportunity in SME lending, where roughly every year you have two to two and a half billion dollars in lending opportunity, but the largest business that is catering to it only has a balance sheet of $10 million in the country. And that you have the development institutions, such as the IFC, the EBRDs of this world, that have a mandate to provide subsidized lending to this market, specifically to SMEs. But they don't have a good conduit to accept that credit on their side. 
and that by being a reputable firm of a good management team, we could be the recipients of that capital. And on the other side, we could lend in a much more competitive rate, much more systematically, and basically capture the majority of that two to two and a half billion dollars market share in lending opportunity. And so we incubated that company in a way where we found the investor, we found the management team. We own around 25% of it. I'm on the board of it myself and almost got started from scratch. And that's doing tremendously well. And it's only in a six-month operation, it already broke even. It's profitable, going back to my point where you don't need to fund losses for a long period of time. And now we're just looking at almost a blank blue ocean of opportunity where we can really scale this business up to a loan portfolio in the hundreds of millions of dollars. As you started operating that business, what are some of the things that came up that you didn't expect along the way? In businesses where you have to obtain some sort of regulatory license, the bureaucratic process gets funky and interesting. I never realized how important stamps are. So you have to have a stamp for everything. The bureaucratic process is a bit arduous in terms of time, but at the same time, it's pretty easy to navigate once you have the process to do it. That's certainly interesting. One of the elements of this business is that you have to hire what are called junior loan officers. So effectively, hiring individuals straight out of university and teaching them how to go into the market to obtain data from these offline businesses to be able to understand how to credit underwrite them because you don't have a centralized credit bureau. Now, the training process is all good and well, but then you have local nuances. So, for example, obviously being a Muslim country, we hire females straight out of university. And oftentimes you would find their parents coming in to check if this place is a real place, what sort of environment it is, is it safe for them to work in, et cetera. So you have these local nuances that, if anything, make the whole thing a bit more interesting and enjoyable. So in a business like that, how do you think about the duration of your investment? In that case, you have to be quite specific in terms of timing or exit. Why? Because, let's say, above half a billion dollar enterprise value, the list of buyers is limited. From two to $400 million, there's more. And from 100 to 200 million, there's more. Now, clearly, if you build the business of the profile that I think we are building under the economics that we have now, it's a matter of time of compounding that you will reach those enterprise values. And it's a matter of when you time your exit, really. Now, ideally, you want it to be in that sweet spot where there are enough buyers that you can have a competitive process and that is within their budget range that they, you can actually exit. For us, when we look at this business, it's basically between five to seven years. What's another one of these examples? The company which I have the most sense of belonging to because it was our first investment and the founders, the gentleman I mentioned is third business. For context, to introduce a comparable business model to start, I mentioned briefly this company called Caspi listed in London. Now, that business is fascinating because Kazakhstan is a population of 19 million and these guys have managed to build a business that is a $15 billion market cap business doing $2 billion in net income a year. Now, what was the premise of what they did? They said the two largest opportunity sets in this market that haven't been exploited are e-commerce and lending. The two of them require basically a means of distribution and a means of obtaining data so that you can credit underwrite on scale. And so what they effectively did was to build out an e-commerce platform to build out the distribution where you have the consumers on one side that are buying, the merchants on the other side that are selling, and that you can embed a lending business into it. And then you can layer on payments, you can layer on other services such as insurance. And they got to a point where in a population of 19 million, they have 10 million monthly active users and 6 million daily active users. It's almost the operating system for the country. So that business model we became fascinated by. Zootpay, the company in question, that business model, but operating in four or five different countries, where on the initial side, we purely started with e-commerce, build the infrastructure to enable e-commerce to happen in these countries, and build up a distribution base where today we have 11 million downloads, 2 million monthly active users, and about 50,000 merchants that are selling on the platform, and a critical mass where we've now started to build a lending business as well, where if you're a consumer, the only way you can buy anything is either through installments or through a longer-term lending product. For the merchants, we basically took on warehouse space where we bring their product in as collateral. We can finance their working capital, and if they don't pay, we can simply sell their product on the platform and get our own liquidity. So you can manage MPLs in a very cost-effective way. And you're talking on markets that collectively, the size of the market is in the tens of billions. What I've been lucky to witness is really the founder and what masterful execution looks like. Arguably, I think probably the best entrepreneur I've ever come across in my life. And just through luck, we got to, I would say, partner with him. And that experience of 
building what I think will be a really tremendous business in these markets run by a very good entrepreneur has been just a really great experience and I'm sure will continue to be. What's made him such an exceptional entrepreneur? A few things. I think one, he understands strategy and how to put stakeholders together and align incentives to get stuff done, whether that's the government-owned logistics company, whether it's the largest payments company in the country, whether it's getting banking licenses. Two has just an energy which is beyond my comprehension. As I said, he has five kids, he's 50, <laughs> travels three weeks a month, and is ruthless in execution. If there's something that needs to be done within a day, it'll be done. Never seen someone that operates at the speed that he does. What do you think it'll take to bring more capital into the countries you're investing in? I think it's just a function of more and more success stories. If you take a step back and look at the more developed emerging markets, be it LATAM or Southeast Asia, and we did a study, and my colleague Alex actually wrote a report on it recently, looking at the early vintages of the venture firms that were investing in them when those markets were in their nascency. Those are some of the highest performing vintages I've seen. They were 10x, 15x, 20x funds. Now, obviously, you have survivorship bias. But once you've validated that opportunity set works, at that point, inevitably, more capital comes in. And we're already seeing that. If you look at a country like Pakistan, they went, on average, for three years, raising $20 million in total for the venture ecosystem, where in 2021, it got to $250 million. In 2022, it was $300 million. And you see that growth exponentially once you prove out. And that's basically been the story of nearly every more developed emerging market. You started your journey in investing enamored with the public markets and the breadth of opportunities and have evolved into this, in the scheme of things, narrow, interesting niche in some countries many others don't invest in. What have you learned across the two disciplines? I think what unifies them is, I mean, this concept of compounding, which is still the most amazing thing. And the lens of which I always looked at it is, what is an area where I believe that as a firm, we could have an unfair advantage, where we could compound capital at a pretty high rate and truly understand why and how we're doing so? Why and how we're doing so is, is I think, the most important part of it is there's a hundred different ways you could be generating returns. I think you have to be very clear about why does that opportunity set exist for you and why is it that you are uniquely able to execute on it? over an extended period of time. And that translates both to the public market side and to the private side. The thing that I've come to appreciate by being an operator is that I think public market investors lose a bit is the variance in outcomes being a function of the quality of execution of management and that there's very wide variance in that quality of execution. And that when you come across someone that is a masterful executioner, operating in a very large market of attractive economic dynamics, those are typically the best situations that you want to be in because it means you can compound capital at a very high rate of return over a very long period of time. Are there opportunities in the public markets in the countries that you're investing in privately? Yes, there are. So increasingly what you're seeing is that going back to that point of the government recognizing that building the technology ecosystem is important, what you see is that the stock market's starting to make it easier for companies, for example, to be able to IPO even at a much earlier stage. Not necessarily that that's the right thing to do, but what you then do see happening is that more and more technology companies appearing on their public markets, and if not failing that, once they get to a certain size, appearing on public markets internationally. And the main reason for that is if you take who is on the other side of that trade, public equity emerging market managers that typically have not had the most attractive investment universe available to them to invest in. Because largely they've been these old industrial businesses or previously state-owned businesses that were normally cheap but extremely cyclical at best. And so there's a lot of capital or balance sheet that's willing to underwrite IPOs of these sort of companies once, again, they earn the right to it and they're large enough to do so. Have you thought about participating in the public markets as part of what you're doing? Not intensely. I think there will come a time where there will be enough of a universe where by virtue of being on the earlier state side, we have a very good understanding of what models are working and not working and the evolution of such that probably you could do a public market fund as well. But at this stage, it's not an immediate focus. I think that's probably 10, 15 years away. As you look out over those next couple of years for Sturgeon, what are you hoping to accomplish? I mean, at the core of it, I still believe our job as investors and allocators of capital would like to really be a great investment firm that is building really unique companies in a world where 
impact has become a boxing exercise, we can meaningfully say that we're having impact in these countries that's sorely needed. The way I see our venture business, it's high octane. It's where we demonstrate to investors what our purpose is of being decorrelated alpha. Now, that's capacity constraint. Now, there's another element to the business where when you look at emerging markets, you have a lot of institutions and corporates that allocate capital into these markets. But oftentimes, performance is a secondary factor. They have a strategic reason why they're allocating to it. They want to achieve a specific objective. That capital probably isn't being served very well by existing players, that we could be a good partner, where in essence, what we say is, we understand how to put a very good team and a process together to fulfill whatever it is that is your objective. And that the revenues from that business allow us to have financial resources to really build out a very good infrastructure as a firm, to continue to be very thoughtful allocates of capital across emerging and frontier markets. All right, Cam, before I let you go, I want to ask you a couple of fun closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? The random one, probably, I play the flamenco guitar. I've played it since I was about 12 years old. It's enjoyable. It has a lot of energy and it's a good distraction where you're also focused at the same time. When I was younger, I did a lot of sports. For about 10 years, I was on a British karate team, competing internationally. Not of the weight anymore to be able to effectively do that. So we'll say those. What did you dream about doing when you were a kid? Probably if you were to ask me when I was six years old, it would be to say I wanted to be a rally driver. But probably at the age of 12, 13, I really liked the idea of independence and self-sufficiency and basically saw business, I guess, or now I can label it entrepreneurial endeavor. I couldn't even call it that then, as something I was really passionate about. And if you ask my parents, for whatever reason, they really like to visit furniture shops. The immediate thing I would do when I was a kid is go to the office section and sit at the desks pretending I was running something. It was a bit of a joke. <laughs> but for some reason, I liked the idea of something that entailed an input and as a result of it, an output that you had some influence over. What's your biggest investment pet peeve? For many years now, what I think has been a disservice to the venture industry is this concept of product market fit. What it effectively has entailed from an investment strategy perspective is that when a company reaches or sees some level of demand, irrespective of the underlying economics of that demand, to throw fuel on the fire and put capital into it to let it grow. What has really been optimized for is business models that can scale revenues, but it's not very clear whether the underlying economics of the thing are actually attractive. And going back to the idea, if you want to compound capital, there has to be a profit at the end of it for capital to be compounded. And so what you often see is decks from companies or investors that a lot of the discussion and narrative is really focused around what I can do to scale revenues. And there's very little discussion around, well, hang on, what is the actual business model behind this thing that will allow me to extract abnormal profits over an extended period of time from it that independently makes this a very attractive financial investment? And that's probably a pet peeve when it comes to that, yeah. What investment mistake did you make that you learned from and will never make again? Well, beyond the leverage example that I said, but <laughs> thankfully it didn't turn out to be a mistake, but honestly it was, was a bit of a nightmare, was investing in situations where you are in awe of the business model, but you've underweighted the ability of management to build against it. So if you think about it on a spectrum, it's one thing building a business that has a million dollars in revenue to 10 million, to 100 million, to 200 million dollars in revenue. And either you have someone that has the ability to evolve and the intellectual honesty to make themselves better across all of that process, or they can't. And that the greatest business model cannot work with average or suboptimal management teams. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? If I was to pick three, if it's okay just to be fair to them, I think I have to mention Clemente Capello, which was the original founder of Sturgeon. I mean, he, for whatever reason, took me in at 25 and almost gave me a blank canvas to take the business that he had worked on for almost a decade and say, do what you think is right with it and give me the complete freedom and trust to do it. Just have immense level of gratitude for him for doing that. Second probably would be Michael, the founder of Zootpay, which I briefly discussed. And more recently, a gentleman that has joined us actually as one of the partners that I mentioned, a gentleman called Lado Gujinidza. So he was the CEO of a bank in Georgia, the country, Bank of Georgia, when it was going through significant reforms and took a $30 million bank and built the largest bank in the country in the space of a handful of years. 
and took it to an IPO of a plus billion dollars in London, was then prime minister of the country for a while because he was a pure technocrat and ran the country as if it was a business and was just incredible doing so. And then since then, has been a lifelong investor and operator in financial services across emerging markets. For me, he's someone that has the widest aperture of business knowledge that I've ever come across, has a very rigorous and rational thought process as to how to think about business, and is probably the best executor in business that I've ever seen in my life. And that's a very, very unique combination of someone to find that has had experience in both public sector and private sector. And there isn't a discussion that I have of him that I don't come away learning a hell of a lot from. And collectively, I think I owe a lot of my career to these three individuals. What was the best advice you ever received and what context did it come to you? I don't recall if it was in a particular context, but this notion, I guess, that over the long term, your life will, to a large extent, reflect what it deserves to be in the sense that in your working life, any success that you have probably will, to a large extent, be a function of how you proactively went about it. Your relationships with your friends, your loving relationship with your wife, your kids, will all be a function of how you, to a large extent, deliberately went about trying to earn the right for it to be good. And that, as a thought process, is probably useful, universally true, and does away with relying on fairness or luck for any success in any aspect of your life. And it implies a responsibility on you as an individual to be deliberate and proactive in the way you want to manage your life. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? There's many specific things, but it's more a notion or a general idea. I think the overarching thing is really just unconditional love. And my parents, I am extremely lucky that when I was a kid, they went to the end of the earth to sacrifice and do best by me. I mean, to give you an example, I was a very supposedly quiet and reserved kid. So at the age of four, my dad forced me into karate. I would train five days a week. He would take me all the time. I was black belt, one of the youngest black belts in the country at age of nine. From 10, I was on the national team, won British championships, European championships. And that was all because of my father. He pushed me, recognizing that it was good for me, that probably it would instill in me some confidence and discipline and that it would demonstrate what achieving something actually looks like. So the fact that they always pushed whatever interest I had and spent the time and backed me to try and do my best in it, just instilled this sense of obligation and humbleness that you have a responsibility to do something with your life with that. Right, Ken, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? I think it's how increasingly time becomes less, more scarce. When you're probably zero to 20, it's the period in your life where you, in theory, have less ownership externally on your time than any point in your life. And that will progressively decrease as you grow older. And not that I think I use my time unwisely, but just to really appreciate that that was a reality, that in those years, you will not get them again. Really, it's a unique dynamic and you should appreciate it for what it is. Thanks so much for sharing this really interesting story. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for listening to this Sponsored Insight. Sponsored episodes are paid opportunities for another 12 managers a year to appear on the podcast. If you're interested in telling your story in front of the largest audience of investors in the industry, please email us at team at to apply for one of the slots.